hppodcraft.com. My name is Lester. My father, Major General Wynne Lester, a distinguished officer of artillery, succumbed five years ago to a complicated liver complaint acquired in the deadly climate of India. A year later, my only brother, Francis, came home after an exceptionally brilliant career at the university and settled down with the resolution of a hermit to master what has been well called the great legend of the law. He was a man who seemed to live in utter indifference to everything that is called pleasure, and though he was handsomer than most men and could talk as merrily and wittily as if he were a mere vagabond, he avoided society and shut himself up in a large room at the top of the house to make himself a lawyer. That is the introduction to the Arthur Mackin story, The Novel of the White Powder, a story that pleasantly surprised me as I thought it was going to be about the joys of cocaine use. <laughs> and I thought this would be kind of a less than zero sort of thing, but oh, no, no, not at all. It totally rocks. Thank God it wasn't a less than zero thing because, man, I read that book when I was in junior high. Oh, my God. It was God. not appropriate for me to read at that age. <laughs> not at all. And nobody told me. It just had, you know, Robert Downey on the cover. Uh-huh. looked like it was going to be, you know, a fun little thing. But it's sort of like last week we were talking about the 80s obsession with snuff films. Oh, right. Lots of that in that book. I, I didn't know where that was. Oh, boy. Yeah, that freaked me out. But I hear you about the cocaine. I, I yeah. thought maybe this would be... Maybe this was the story that Grandmaster Flash based his masterpiece White Lines on. I thought the same thing. But no. Turns out to be something H.P. Lovecraft based a lot of his stories on. Oh. And that's why we're covering it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. This story is part of the book The Three Imposters, which is a collection of short stories loosely tied together with a narrative about three guys trying to find a Roman coin commemorating an orgy. <laughs> and I know they have those collectible Civil War coins, but I didn't know the Franklin Mint did orgies, and that's great news. It is great news, finally. I can't wait to see the infomercial for it on daytime TV. <laughs> These orgy coins will only increase in value. <laughs> and if you order now, we'll send you a great God Pan commemorative plate. Don't look into his eyes, or you'll get pregnant, no matter your age. <laughs> We covered the novel of the Black Seal uh, from the Three yes. Imposters. That's the other thing we've done from this book. Back mm-hmm. in the heady days of 2013. So carefree. Oh, so long ago. And I believe we managed to secure the same reader we had for that story. That is right. Our lovely reader is once again Rachel Lackey. And you can hear more of her talking about classic Star Trek on her podcast, Rachel Watches Star Trek. I actually read the little wraparound for this story as well. Oh. Since these things are couched in the um, the Three Imposters, they all mm-hmm. have sort of introductions by the main characters. Right. Uh, and actually, I have a copy of The Great God Pan and Other Weird Stories from Arcane Wisdom, which is an imprint of Bloodletting Press. Yes. Which they were gracious enough to send us many years ago, so I read it in there. The wraparound is what connects the story to the rest of the book, as I said. It's called The Recluse of Bayswater. Mm-hmm. It's not worth going into too much detail, but I'll give you the basics. Right. We start with this fellow, Mr. Dyson, whom, if you recall, is one of the main characters of the book. When we did the novel The Black Seal, he was in the introduction to that as well. He's basically Mackin's occult detective character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherlock, he's got a guy, Phillips, that hangs out with him that's sort of his Watson. Right. Although he is far less annoying than most occult detectives we've had to deal with. Yes. He's a little just sort of a nice guy that people like to talk to. Mm-hmm. He's visiting this guy, Mr. Edgar Russell, an old friend of his, who's a frustrated, poor writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a poor writer, but a writer in poverty. Oh, right, yes. Russell lives in the rented back room of a house. So Dyson goes to see him. They have some beers. They have a conversation about how difficult it is to to write. And then Dyson asks, hey, did somebody move into that room downstairs? And Russell says, yeah, about two weeks ago, a widow moved in. 
It's this woman. She's always wearing a veil. I've barely spoken to her. I don't think I could point her out of a crowd because I've never seen her without the veil on. Now, when Dyson is leaving the house after his visit, the veiled woman leans out of her door and she says, hey, you seem like a nice guy. (laughs) I need some help. Uh, Why don't you shut the front door as if you left and then come back up and talk to me in private? And Dyson says, okay, sure. And he does this. Uh He goes to her room. He sits down. She's still wearing the veil, but she says, look, here's the thing. I'm not actually a widow. I'm going around like this because I'm in disguise. I need some help, but I got to give you background on why I need help first. Uh And that's what the novel of the white powder is. That's going to be her story of what happened to get her in this weird predicament she's in. So she starts with the paragraph we heard at the top. Again, this is Miss Helen Lester. Ah, okay. Mackin really loves that name, Helen. All right, yeah. That was also in uh, Great God Pain, right? That's right. This story is mostly about her and her brother, Francis. Francis is a handsome, clever guy, fun at parties. You know, the kind of guy that makes sure you always have a drink, always gets someone who is not you to reveal strange personal information that is hilarious (laughs) and disturbing in equal proportions. Isn't it? instigator he's that guy he's that guy but he's awesome i mean everybody's made out with a hobo right jimmy high pitch oh boy i can finally get this story off my chest (laughs) this is gonna be great (laughs) finally a group of people to relate to when i'm in out with that hobo (laughs) anyway as you say francis is a charming and fun guy But guess what? He's not into any of that fun stuff. He's into studying law. That is what he does all day, every day. Right. We're talking 10 hours a day, I think, is the number they give. He gets up with the sun. He gets into his books. He barely takes a half hour to wolf down his meals. And at first, he seems fine with it. The hermit life agrees with him. But then he begins to get sick. So Miss Lester has Dr. Haberden come check him out. Haberden gives Francis a general good belt of health, meaning that he's not dying, but he needs to relax and he prescribes Francis the medicine. So Francis has this prescription filled at a local chemist. That's a pharmacy for Americans. Yeah. Uh, that is very old-fashioned and run by a very, very old man. All it says is that it's odd and old-fashioned, but I imagine it loaded up with strange bottles with multicolored fluids and then maybe mm-hmm. a mogwai in a cage somewhere. Yes. That, that kind of place. Uh, so the medicine is a white powder, title of the, the story, mm-hmm. uh, and he has to take it twice a day mixed in with a glass of water. He just stirs it up in some water, it dissolves, and then down the hatch. At first, this seems to do the trick. He gets a life and vitality back into his face. He's more cheery and happy-go-lucky. He says, I have given too many hours to law. I think you have saved me in the nick of time. Come, I shall be Lord Chancellor yet, but I must not forget life. So whatever's in this mixture, it's making him not want to live the hermit life anymore. Yes. So he suggests to his sister that they go to Paris together, and he promises he won't even visit the library. So she suggests, well, well, let's go tomorrow. And he's like, well, that's a little too soon for me. You know, I want to kick around London a bit. I've lived here for so long, and I've never really gone out and experienced it. So let's let's do London before we go to Paris. Yeah, since he's been in the city, all he's been doing is studying. He doesn't know it very well, so probably should enjoy where he lives before going abroad. So that night, in fact, he wants to go out and live it up. Now, she's delighted that her brother seems to have this new lease on life and is just rocking it out. In the morning, he says that he ran into an old college buddy, Orford, and that they're going to hang out again that evening. And he keeps putting off the Paris trip with her, though. Maybe his sister is kind of square and doesn't like to party. I don't know. But she's getting a little bit of the cold shoulder. But generally, she's happy that her brother is out living life. Right. So over the next few days, he becomes a sensualist of sorts, enjoying all that London has to offer. He actually gains weight super fast and becomes pretty chubby. He forgets Paris completely as London is giving him all that he needs. He seems like a stranger to Helen. Yeah, he's still coming in late after partying all night, but he doesn't talk about what he's been up to anymore. 
He doesn't regale her with stories of his nights out. There's been some kind of change in him. I was wondering if he was getting up to like bad stuff. Yeah, I think like doing more dirty things. That's the implication, I think, but it's a very subtle implication. Mm -hmm. At breakfast, she breaks down and cries saying, what have you done to yourself? I don't, you know, I don't know you. And then she just runs out of the room. She has this strange thought in her mind of a sunset that she saw when Francis first traveled abroad. The sunset sky glowed before me, the clouds like a city in burning flames and the rain of blood. Yeah, that's what it looked like the first time he went out uh, to start partying. And this imagery shows up a lot in the story. The sunset throwing such light on the city that it seems to be burning blood flowing through the streets. It's pretty good stuff, actually. Yeah. I think it sets a nice scene. So that night at dinner, she plans to press him about the Paris trip after he took his medicine, because he's still taking his medicine. She went to say, you know, what about Paris? And then she just kind of forgot what she was going to say. And then she begins to feel super anxious. It's like a, a horror just grips her. It says, I wondered for a second what icy and intolerable weight oppressed my heart and suffocated me as with the unutterable horror of the coffin lid nailed down on the living. Yeah, so they, they're eating without candles and the sun starts to go down and the sky looks very similar to the way it did in her memory that she had earlier that day. It says, in the gap between two dark masses that were houses, an awful pageantry of flame appeared. Lurid whirls of writhed cloud and utter depths burning, gray masses like the fume blown from a smoking city, and an evil glory blazing far above shot with tongues of more ardent fire, and below as if there were a deep pool of blood. So it's kind of ratcheting that first description up to 11. It's great imagery. She looks at her brother's hand on the table, and it has this black mark like a bruise the size of a penny on it. She knows somehow that it is not a bruise. She says, oh, if human flesh could burn with flame and if flame could be black as pitch, such was that before me. She knows that it's a brand of some kind, some kind of unholy mark. Now the sun sets and the room gets dark and her brother just kind of gets up and leaves for the night. So Helen decides to go and see Dr. Haberden right away. Maybe he just got matching tattoos with one of his buddies. (laughs) And on his lower back, I also beheld a butterfly surrounded by stars and sparkles. (laughs) butterfly. Chinese characters, who knows what they mean? (laughs) So the doctor sees her, and he's nice, but he's very dismissive of what she saw or thought she saw. Yeah, he says, your eyes have been staring at that very curious sunset we had tonight. So he saw it too. Hmm. That's the only explanation for seeing that spot probably burned into your eyes and you just noticed it. Hmm. You you know, it's really nothing, but you're making... Also, you've been so anxious about your brother, your mind's playing tricks on you. That's probably all that's happening. So the next morning, she sees Francis's hand is bandaged. He says that he cut it and she offers to dress it properly, but he declines and changes the subject, saying that he's hungry. But when they sit down to eat, he doesn't eat at all. But he's slipping the food to the dog when he thinks that she's not looking. Looking at him, she feels like he doesn't even seem human in some undetermined way. And she decides that she's going to go see the doctor again. Now, this time the doc listens to her, but he fixes on some info I think she didn't give him before that he's still taking the medicine, which he shouldn't be. Right. He's gone well past when he was supposed to be needing it. The doctor asks who fulfilled the prescription he'd written. And she says, well, it's the old guy from that weird pharmacy. And the doc is like, I would never send anyone to that old guy. He's getting careless in his age. So he decides that they should go pay the pharmacist a visit. The guy is old as dirt, but he's nice and he's very forthcoming. And he shows the doc the bottle, which says it's the drug that it's supposed to be. But inside it's flaky and strange and it smells off and it is not what's supposed to be in there. Yeah, it's something that the pharmacist ordered from the wholesaler a long time ago. 
when the doc smells it, right away he knows it's not the right thing. He's like, I prescribed cocaine, you fool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the old guy says that he had it for a very long time and no one ever uses it, but he promises it's the right drug. And the doc tells him he shouldn't sell it and he takes the white powder anyway. As Dr. Haberdin and Helen walk back to his place, she can see that he looks worried. Mm-hmm. When they get to the house, he tells her that he has this buddy who is a scientist chemist, not like a pharmacist chemist, but a guy yep. who actually deals with chemicals and chemistry, sure. that he's going to send this sample to, this stuff, and go, I want to find out what this guy has been taking because it might really be messing him up. Yeah. So that night, she goes back home, and Francis, he doesn't go out like he usually does. He says his freewheeling days are over, and he's going to go back to being a lawman. I wonder why she doesn't tell him that he's been taking the wrong stuff. Yeah. Wouldn't she be worried? Yeah, like immediately. That he would continue to do it? I I just didn't understand. That was the only thing in the story I thought, well, why aren't they helping him out a little bit by saying, hey, by the way, you took some stuff. It might be really messing you up. Like, just hip him to it. Yeah. Seems like pertinent information. A few days later, Dr. Haberden comes over and he tells her that his science buddy is out of town. So he's just going to examine Francis and see if how he's doing. Yeah. Uh, He goes up to Francis's room and it's quiet and he's up there for like an hour. At this point, it was very tense for me. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to kill the guy or nothing, really. He comes down the stairs, but he's visibly shaken. Mm. And he says, I've seen that man. He began in a dry whisper. I have been sitting in his presence for the last hour. My God. And I am alive and in my senses. I, who have dealt with death all my life and have dabbled in the melting ruins of the earthly tabernacle, but not this, oh, not this. And he covered his face with his hands as if to shut out the sight of something before him. Do not send for me again, Miss Lester, he said with more composure. I can do nothing in this house. Goodbye. (laughs) That sucks. Yeah. He just gives up on it. And that is one of my favorite story beats. You don't get to see it too often, where you assume somebody's going to become a an investigator or a Van Helsing or, yeah. a, you know, the person who's going to solve things and they just go, nope, not interested. It happens in that movie Paranormal Activity, which I love, the first one, yeah. where, you know, a priest, I think he's a priest or psychic or I don't know what he is, a ghost hunter. They, they finally break down and call this guy to come over because so many weird things are happening in the house. And the guy walks in and he goes, nope, not dealing with this. I'll see you guys later. And he <laughs> just leaves. <laughs> and he, then he's just out of the movie. You know, I remember being in a theater and seeing that and going, oh, no, it really <laughs> ratcheted up the tension. You know, I thought for sure this guy was going to come in and do a seance and do all this business and holy water and nope what you guys are dealing with it's freaking me out and I just gotta go yeah (laughs) it was great Uh, Francis remains in his room he tells the servants he doesn't want to see anybody he just wants his food left at the door wonder if he accidentally got the Jekyll and Hyde mixture I was thinking (laughs) because these scenes are somewhat similar to that book yeah locked up in the in the sort of lab yeah leave the food at the door and actually that was Lovecraft's only bitch about this collection, The Three Imposters. Oh, really? Love the book. Yeah, in Supernatural and Horror and Literature, he writes, In the episodic novel of The Three Imposters, a work whose merit as a whole is somewhat marred by an imitation of the jaunty Stevenson manner, occur certain tales which perhaps represent the high watermark of Mackin's skill as a terror weaver. Oh. So, you know, he does think it's a little close to Stevenson. I mean, I think he maybe is talking about the language. It's also little story elements in, in this in particular that are kind of that. right out of uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And this next beat that we're about to have here, it's also it also has like a mirror scene in Jekyll and Hyde as well, which was written about 10 years before this. So two weeks after the doc's visit, Miss Lester is out for a walk one day, and when she comes home, she looks up at the house. As I delayed a moment at the verge of the pavement, waiting for a van to pass by before crossing over to the house, I happened to look up at the window. 
and instantly there was the rush and swirl of deep, cold waters in my ears. My heart leapt up and fell down, down as into a deep hollow, and I was amazed with a dread and terror without form or shape. I stretched out a hand blindly through the folds of thick darkness from the black and shadowy valley and held myself from falling while the stones beneath my feet rocked and swayed and tilted, and the sense of solid things seemed to sink away from under me. I had glanced up at the window of my brother's study, and at that moment the blind was drawn aside, and something that had life stared out into the world. Nay, I cannot say I saw a face or any human likeness. A living thing, two eyes of burning flame glared at me, and they were in the midst of something as formless as my fear the symbol and presence of all evil and all hideous corruption. I stood shuddering and quaking, as with the grip of ague, sick with unspeakable agonies of fear and loathing, and for five minutes I could not summon force or motion to my limbs. But eventually she runs into the house, she goes up to her brother's room and knocks on the door, says, there's something in there with you. But he doesn't open the door, and he says, in a voice not his own, there's nothing here. Pray do not disturb me. I am not very well today. So yeah, that's like right out of Jekyll and Hyde. Because remember, there's the scene where they do see him peering out the window. That's right. His buddies. And they look up and they're like, hey man, what's up? You want to hang out? And he just kind of gets all crazy and ducks Mm -hmm. in because like some kind of transformation overtakes him. Yeah. And also there was that people are going, it doesn't sound like his voice. The person who's responding when we knock on the lab door. So a lot of these things are very similar. She reflects on what she saw because it's forever etched into her brain. She thinks about the hand of the thing. It says, it was not a hand. There were no fingers that held the blind, but a black stump pushed it aside. The moldering outline and the clumsy movement as of a beast's paw had glowed into my senses before the darkling waves of terror had overwhelmed me as I went down quick into the pit. She periodically checks on her brother, but he never answers. The help is saying that he's not even eating his food. Sometimes they do hear him out at night, leaving his room and walking around the house, but the door to the room is locked from the inside, so nobody can really go in to check on him. Finally, things come to a head. One of the servants howls while in Helen's room. It seems like some black slime has dropped on her from the ceiling. Looking up, they can see a big black stain. And that room above her room is her brother's. Right. Little picture in the house action. All right. Yeah. The thing dripping from above. So she runs up and bangs on the door and calls for her brother. But all she hears is a sound of choking and a noise like water bubbling and regurgitating, but nothing else. Whoa. And the smell of cannabis. I know what's going on in there. <laughs> He's hitting Bongzilla in there. That's what's Oh, happening. no. So even though the doctor said not to bother him, she goes to Dr. Haberden's house and gets him to come check on her brother. Now, he's pale and shaking and already freaked out before he even gets to their house, the doctor is. Uh, He bangs on the door, but there's no answer. And he warns Francis, look, I'm going to break in. This is your last chance to open the door. No answer. He asks her for a fire poker, but she finds an ads-like thing, which is sort of like a hatchet, but the blade is Mm. horizontal instead of vertical. And it's used for like kind of getting wood out of stuff. Okay. I didn't know what that, I had to look that one up. That's why I'm describing it. So the wood (laughs) cracks and he gets into the room. It's night at this point. When this happens, they're all using gas lamps and he hands the gas lamp to Helen as he goes inside. And then he goes, okay, get in here. Look in the corner. I looked and a pang of horror seized my heart as with a white hot iron. There upon the floor, 
was a dark and putrid mass, seething with corruption and hideous rottenness, neither liquid nor solid, but melting and changing before our eyes, and bubbling with unctuous oily bubbles like boiling pitch. And out of the midst of it shone two burning points like eyes, and I saw a writhing and a stirring as of limbs, and something moved and lifted up what might have been an arm. The doctor took a step forward, raised the iron bar, and struck at the burning points. He drove in the weapon, and struck again and again in the fury of loathing. So he just kills Francis. Well, yeah. Or whatever. Whatever the thing was. I mean, that used to be a guy. Yeah. <laughs> maybe if you give him some black powder, he'll reform or something, though. We don't know. <laughs> or maybe you could pour him into some kind of robot scuba suit and he could have a happy life that way. Oh, wow. You know? That'd be great. Yeah. I know. Just goes right to killing him. No imagination whatsoever. Uh-uh. So two weeks after that, the doctor finally returns to the house. He has sold his practice and is leaving the next day to go live in California. And that's why the state is like it is. Every time somebody sees something horrific that drives them mad, move to California. <laughs> uh, that's why I went. Yeah. He <laughs> has brought her a packet with the lab results from his scientist buddy, mm-hmm. which he finally got on what the chemical was. So he leaves it with her and she opens the packet immediately. Now, this letter goes on a bit. There's a letter from the chemist who analyzed the white powder. It's a letter to Dr. Haberden explaining what it, what it is. Right. But also Dr. Haberden's notes are in this packet as well to right. Helen. Yeah. But initially, this fella, he says he's a man of science, but science doesn't have all the answers, that legends and myths hold secrets, science has yet to understand, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Same old, same old. We've heard this many, many times before. He does quote this Latin phrase, Omnia exuant in mysterium. Which means that every branch of human knowledge, if traced up to its source, and final principles vanish into mystery. Right. Basically, that if you keep asking why, if you've ever talked to a kid and played the why game, uh-huh. like, why is this the way? And it's like, well, because of that. Why? Well, because of this. Why? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You're going to hit that <laughs> at some point. You're just, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's, yeah. it's unknown. And that's, I mean, basically what it's saying. Yeah. Once you keep going there, it's eventually nobody knows. It's a true statement. He goes on to get very metaphysical, says the whole universe, my friend, is a tremendous sacrament, a mystic, ineffable force and energy veiled by an outward form of matter, and man and the sun and the stars and the flowers of grass and the crystal and the test tube are each and every one a spiritual as material and subject to an inner working. We're all just stardust, man. <laughs> he goes on to say that there's truth in legends, maybe not the way that they say, but in a way there is. You see, there aren't technically werewolves, but people do grow hair. <laughs> and maybe technically there aren't demons, but sometimes when, when I'm in the shower, I use the shampoo to make it look like I have horns. <laughs> so, you know, there's a little truth in all myths, <laughs> in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Finally, in the letter, he gets to the white powder. He says that it is a substance that was known to a few, many hundreds of years ago, but something you would never see in a modern apothecary. He says it was once the substance that it was supposed to be, but it changed from being on a shelf for 20 years or longer. It must have had some kind of regular variation in temperature from 40 to 80 degrees. 
And as it happens, such changes reoccurring year after year at irregular intervals and with varying degrees of intensity and duration have constituted a process, and a process so complicated and so delicate that I question whether modern scientific apparatus directed with the utmost precision could produce the same result. So basically, this is some kind of accidental alchemy that turned whatever this stuff was into an ancient scary formula. The chemist says that the drug he prescribed is not this stuff. This is the powder that witches used on the Sabbath. He got this info from a rare monograph by Payne Knight. And this was an ancestor of Michael Knight, (laughs) uh, who was played by David Hasselhoff in Knight Rider, (laughs) based on Arthur Mackin's The Novel of the Trans Am, (laughs) as everybody knows. But please, back to the monograph. (laughs) The monograph, yes. In this monograph says that there are beings that are otherworldly that take on the role of what we would call devils, but they have their own evil science and they would have the Sabbath and people would ingest this stuff as part of their sacrament. Mm -hmm. It says, by the power of that Sabbath wine, a few grains of white powder thrown into a glass of water, the house of life was riven asunder with the human trinity dissolved and the worm which never dies, that which lies sleeping within us all, was made tangible and an external thing and clothed with a garment of flesh. And then, in the hour of midnight, the primal fall was repeated and re-presented. And the awful thing, veiled in the mythos of the tree in the garden, was done anew. So he says that this stuff is not stuff to be messed with. He ends his analysis, so he's done. Then Dr. Haberden writes at the end of that report, and this is the conclusion of the story. The whole of the above is unfortunately strictly and entirely true. Your brother confessed all to me on that morning when I saw him in his room. My attention was first attracted to the bandaged hand, and I forced him to show it to me. What I saw made me, a medical man of many years standing, grow sick with loathing, and the story I was forced to listen to was infinitely more frightful than I could have believed possible. It has tempted me to doubt the eternal goodness which can permit nature to offer such hideous possibilities. And if you had not with your own eyes seen the end, I should have said to you, disbelieve it all. I have not, I think, many more weeks to live, but you are young and may forget all this. Joseph Haberden, M.D. In the course of two or three months, I heard that Dr. Haberden had died at sea shortly after the ship left England. That's the end. That's how it ends uh, with the doc passing away at sea and yeah I'm a little confused about what happens when this stuff is ingested based on that description of the Sabbath I think something about it it takes what that darkness in all of us that we all have and it mm. it, it sheds away all of our goodness and so we're just left with this this bad thing and so the bad thing is what we become we become that that little worm that's inside of us and it, it reaches out so I think that's what was was happening so all of his goodness yeah. was being shed away and then he's just not just evil but like evil in a physical sense as well like this black oozy globule thing <laughs> yeah i mean somehow it's like you're becoming the snake from the garden of eden right it's, it says yeah. the awful thing veiled in the mythos of the tree in the garden was done anew which i it's a reference to genesis right so yeah and the primal fall was repeated repeated and represented. So you take this stuff, and then when you ooze to pieces like this, it's a recreation of original sin in some way, I guess. I, yeah, I guess. Or, you know, that's his trying to 
figure out what it was that actually happened, and that's his, yeah. I think the thing that really impressed Lovecraft about this had less to do with the conventional morality behind this thing and more to do with the the man becoming an icky thing that dissolves into the floor, you know, because Mm -hmm. he uses this in cool air. He uses this in the color out of space. I think that that's what really influenced him. Um, Also, I just wanted to make a quick correction on something I I said earlier. Michael Knight actually was not descended from Payne Knight. No. No, because Michael Knight was the assumed identity of Michael Long. Oh, geez. Who was a police officer who was shot, underwent reconstructive surgery on his face that made him look like Hasselhoff. Right. And then he became Michael Knight to go underground. Yeah. Wow. Probably if you haven't seen the pilot for that show, you wouldn't know that. But I just wanted to clear that up. Sorry I made that inference earlier. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad that we're correcting, (laughs) even within the episode. Yeah. That's good. I look. I didn't want to get all the mail. You know, I just, I just can't handle. Of course. Anyway, also, now this part's real. Really quick. After the conclusion of the story, <laughs> Wait, that still was this, real. That was true. Well, that, no, that's true. That's all very true. Uh, after the conclusion of the story, the wraparound narrative also concludes. Oh right. Remember, our occult detective Dyson was listening to the story from Helen, who's disguised as a widow. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened, and this is the reason she's disguised. She was suspected of her brother's murder. Oh uh, right, of course. This was put out there by some relatives who it's also suggested maybe have a profit motive for getting her out of the picture. Oh, no. There's some bad people. Poor Helen. There's no proof, though. She loved her brother. She did. And ever since this stuff went down, though, she's been being watched by agents hired by her relatives. Mm -hmm. Even when she travels, there's somebody shadowing her. So finally, she decides, I got to disappear from my pursuers, which is why Mm -hmm. she rented this room. It's why she's disguising herself as a widow. Right. But she thinks the detective pursuing her may be onto her plan. Mm-hmm. She thinks there's been somebody lurking around the house. So she asks Dyson, have you seen anybody lurking around the house? And he says, well, I'm not sure. What would I be looking for? And Helen says, well, it's this guy with big whiskers and he's got gigantic spectacles he's using to disguise himself. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Dyson just says, sorry, can't help you. Maybe my friend upstairs can. I don't know. I got to get out of here. And he just leaves. <laughs> And that's the end of the wraparound. Now, he got really freaked out when she described this guy with the spectacles. Uh You know, you remember that orgy coin that you talked about at the beginning. How could I forget? Yeah, of course. Well, we had talked about this man in spectacles when we did Novel of the Black Seal, but that was Mm -hmm. a long time ago. Uh, He's apparently the one who dropped this coin that Dyson found following this guy with the spectacles around has been the thing that's connecting all these stories together. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason he got freaked out. This is not the detective following her. This is no. the guy that, that had the orgy coin. Yeah. Uh, and this gets concluded a bit in the next chapter that follows this in the book. It says, finally, we have the strange occurrence in Clerkenwell in which Dyson finally finds the man he's been pursuing and then learns the history of the young man with spectacles. That's another story. Yep. He turns out to be a student who fell in with a certain sinister Dr. Lipsius who runs a secret society dedicated to reenacting pagan orgies. <laughs> the society wants that coin and the young man decides to take the coin and clear out. It's then that Dyson and Phillips learned that all the people they've encountered were imposters and that the tales they've heard were intended only to distract and mislead them. Uh, so everything we just heard might have been complete nonsense. Oh, uh, what? It's, it's not true? A, I don't know. I guess not. Finally, in the adventure of the deserted residents in this book, we have a conclusion that's actually fairly gruesome and tragic. Dyson makes it to the end, but again, he's fairly ineffectual and arrives too late. So I want to go back to this uh, secret society that's dedicated to the reenacting of pagan orgies. And they want this coin. Is it because they think that there might be some information on the coin on how to do better pagan orgies? I think that must be what it is. Like they're like, these orgies are okay, but I bet you there's some secret orgy (laughs) technique that we are not utilizing. And this coin is going to have it. Either what's depicted on the coin or maybe there's some writing on there that'll clue him into it. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, that's the wraparound for the novel. Uh, but the story is genuine. This is the most popular story from the novel. Yeah. And this is the thing that gets 
reprinted on its own quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So the story on its own, you really liked, right? I really liked it. Yeah, I was surprised at how quickly I flew through it and was just into it. Well, Lovecraft said the story approaches the absolute culmination of loathsome fright. Yeah. It's a pretty it's a pretty gross image of him all falling apart, and I don't know how common that type of thing was in the 1890s when this was written. So it's probably a pretty original concept as well. Yeah. Thanks, Novel of the White Powder. Thank you, Novel of the White Powder, and thank you, patrons. Yeah, I have some patrons that I would like to thank for making this show possible, for being part of the team, and I'm going to start with Chad Anktil. I'd like to thank Rick Duffy. I want to thank Bigos Sagua. I would like to thank Zachary J. Quimby. Magnus Nordstrand, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Mrs. Obed Marsh. What? Got a celebrity. I want to thank Ellie. I'd like to thank Mara Hampson. I'd like to thank good old Jeffrey Shanks. Hey, Jeff. Oh, Jeff Shanks. Yeah, we know a friend of the show. Yep. I'd like to thank Michael Burns. And finally, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Clark. You guys are amazing. Hey, and we can't forget to thank our amazing reader for today. Oh my gosh, Rachel Lackey. You can hear more of her lovely voice and her awesome comedic genius on her podcast and mine, Rachel Watches Star Trek. Tune into that. Thank you all for tuning in today to our coverage of the novel, The White Powder. We are going to be back next week with a story called The Deseret on Yandro. Yeah, that's a mouthful. On Yandro by Manly Wade Wellman. Oh, it's Manly I, Wade. It's We're Manly back to Wade, Manly yeah. Wade. Okay. Exactly. I'm ready for I, that. It's a Silver John story, I believe, which we all have right. not done for some time. So I'm excited about that. I don't know what it's about at all. It's going to be a, a journey of discovery for both of you. <laughs> and with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HP